Lucky number two. Welcome, you budding faithful listeners, to the second, the sophomore episode of The Library Game. I'm Amy. I'm Lacey. And we are your guides in this methodical yet random process of unburdening yourself of the question, what do I read next? So if you want a little bit more detail about how we go about doing The Library Game, Listen to the first episode. What are you doing? If you got it down, you're ready to go, then let's just go ahead and move on. Once again, our RSSB coordinates are 12615. So that's row 12, section six, shelf one, book five. Maybe that led you somewhere else, but for us, it led us to News of the World, a novel by Paulette Giles. It also says Paulette is a New York Times bestselling author of Enemy Women. I've never heard of Paulette, Enemy Women, or News of the World. Now, I have heard of News of the World, so I'm going to reserve what I say in our by the cover section and let you go first. Okay, so this is our by the cover. There's not a lot to go off of. You know, it's kind of like a like an old weathered looking photo, so... It's definitely old-timey. It's untouched sort of prairie land, big blue sky, and then it looks like a horse drawing a cart maybe and somebody walking along behind them. It's like really small figures. And that's pretty much all we have to go off of. The back cover is just your standard you know, reviews or whatever. So we're not looking at that because we don't want that to uh, influence our judgments of the cover of this book. Yeah. I mean, so my immediate impression is this, this is going to be a Western. Uh, I honestly, I just have to go off of news of the world and guess what that's about. So here's my I have no idea other than it's a Western, which I don't particularly enjoy in any sort of media. (laughs) I'm going to guess that this is somebody who's like maybe a like a postman Mm -hmm. bringing mail news to the Wild West. Like so it's their their adventures going through these like western towns and getting to meet all those characters and bringing news from from back east out to those people. Okay, so from my limited understanding of what I've seen of commercials for the major motion picture news of the world right. um, <laughs> uh, is that uh really Tom Hanks. No. Yeah, Tom Hanks is the main character. What? Uh he or he plays the main character. I think he is something like a postman no, who really? brings news of the world <laughs> to the frontier. I, I want to say the movie was like nominated for an award or something. Oh. Yeah, so it's Tom Hanks. There is something about a little girl, I think, that maybe ends up having to come along with him for some reason. And I do think the movie was done as Oscar bait, I feel like. Okay. Like, we want to win awards. So I think that there is a very wholesome faith in humanity kind of message that comes but it's, in the it's story. it's definitely like a drama. Yes. Yeah, I, I, my understanding of it. My prediction from what I've seen of the commercials is a coming of age kind of story for the girl. Okay. And some kind of like relearning to have faith in humanity from the man. Okay. Honestly, what's weird is that like I, I have repeatedly seen commercials for that movie 
And it was still very much a by the cover guess of what it's about. But I do I do think that you are probably right in the sense of it is how news was brought to the frontier. Well, let's dive in. Read me. Okay, so the we are going cover. to yeah, we are going to open this up and first sight of the inside cover uh, description. Uh, oh, as we open it up, we do have a big old map of Texas with Oklahoma listed as Indian Territory. Arkansas, Louisiana is on there. So we, there is a map with a line here, which I'm assuming is the path that our hero takes. So here we go. In the aftermath of the Civil War, Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd drifts through northern Texas, performing live readings from newspapers to paying audiences hungry for news of the world, of the Irish pouring into New York City, of the railroad driving into the new state of Nebraska, of an eruption of Popocatépetl near Mexico City. I'm ah. so glad you read that. <laughs> An elderly widower who has lived through three wars and fought in two of them, the captain once made his living as a printer until the war between the states took his press and everything with it. Now at 71, he enjoys the freedom Damn. of the road, even if his body aches and money is scarce. At a stop in Wichita Falls, Captain Kidd is offered a $50 gold piece to deliver a young orphan to her relatives near San Antonio. Four years earlier, a band of Kiowa raiders viciously killed Joanna Leonberger's parents and sister. Sparing the little girl, they raised her as their own. Recently recovered by the U.S. Army, the 10-year-old with blue eyes and hair the color of maple sugar has once again been torn away from the only home and family she knows. The captain's sense of duty and of compassion propel him to accept, though he knows the journey will be long and difficult. Winding through unsettled territory and unforgiving terrain, the 400-mile odyssey south proves dangerous as well. A corrupt Reconstruction administration runs the state government, and anarchy and lawlessness have taken hold. The captain must watch for thieves, Comanches, and Kiowas, and the Federal Army, and corral the wild Joanna. Small and thin, the despondent child has forgotten the English language, tries to escape at every opportunity, throws away her shoes, and refuses to act, quote, civilized. So basically like every child ever. Yeah, just, you know. A wild child, I guess. Uh, yet, as the miles pass, the wary Joanna, this continues on to the back cover, slowly draws closer to the man she calls Captain. Oh, I get it. Like, Captain. Okay. And the two lonely survivors forge a bond that marks the difference between life and death in this treacherous land. But in San Antonio, another hurdle awaits. One that will force this respectable man to make a terrible choice that will determine Joanna's fate and his own. Unfolding in gorgeous prose, the news of the world is a vivid portrait that captures a beautiful and hostile land, and a masterful exploration of the boundaries of family, responsibility, honor, and trust. So I think our predictions were a little bit closer to the truth of the story this time than we did last time. I'm curious to see what I'm going to think about this one. I might really like it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Western aspect is more of a backdrop in this sense. It's yeah. not a book about the West. I don't know. We'll see. The uh, the prose and the beautiful whatever, that makes me a little nervous. Yeah. When was this written? We've got a copyright of 2016. I'm surprised. I thought it was going to be older. 
So I'm a little less worried now about the story of the little girl who was taken by the Kiowas and raised among their tribe and then back into quote unquote civilized society. I, I see stuff like that and I'm like, ooh, if this book is too old, this is going to have some hot takes that we are not going to be happy with in this day and age. And I wasn't really looking forward to dealing with that. So hopefully it's a little more self-aware than that. I just want to watch Tom Hanks. Well, we can't until after we read the book. All right. Now we're going to read the book. Well, all right. We read the book. You listened to the book. I read the book. I did listen to the book. And I have to say, once again, I very much enjoy having a book read to me by someone whose voice matches the character. So in the audiobook that I listened to, the reader did a really good job of having that older man voice. And that mixed with my knowledge that Tom Hanks plays the character in the movie gave me a lot of good mental imagery. That's interesting because a lot of people talk about imagining the characters or whatever. I don't do that. There is no imagery whatsoever when I'm reading a book. Really? Yeah, it is just the words flowing through. That's bizarre to me because I am very much a cinematic thinker yeah. when I'm reading. And so I look at it like I'm watching the movie in my mind. No, that does not happen for me. So I've always thought it was weird when people are like, oh, that's what I imagine they look like because I don't. So you don't do a lot of the fan casting that people talk about like, oh, this actor would be great for this character not real. I mean, I do that based off of presentation and personality or whatever, more so than the actual way that they look. I mean, if it was vastly different, like you were casting Jon Snow and you showed someone like a Samwell, that would be <laughs> <laughs> obviously wouldn't fit, but I don't know. So it's knowing- a vibe. I'm more about the vibe than sure. the. <laughs> you love people for their true inner selves, not their looks. <laughs> So knowing that Tom Cruise played the character, even not though we, Tom Cruise, he, he was not, not Tom Cruise. No I, Tom Cruise. I've done that a few times. <laughs> knowing that Tom Hanks plays the character beforehand, even though we did not watch the movie until after we read the book, did Tom Hanks come into your mind while reading? No, actually. Wow. Surprisingly, I mean, the character in my mind. It's hard to say because we've already watched the movie. Sure. But in my mind was a much more grizzled person. Fair enough. Than Tom Hanks. I don't think Tom Hanks can look grizzled enough to meet what I was picturing. I will say I imagined Tom Hanks as more grizzled, but it was definitely Tom Hanks in my brain. Let's go ahead and go through just the highlights, the plot points of the book and have our discussion around that. So in this story, we start out in Wichita Falls where Captain Kidd is giving his reading of the news to the local people. And we're introduced to a few things that are foreshadowing later events. One of those being the appearance of a particular blonde guy in the background. What else do we get at this point? We get a lot of background on Kidd, and I'm not sure where all of it plays in. But for me, a lot of the book was matching up his history with his current behavior. So why is he making the decisions he's making? And then you kind of get these flashbacks of his younger years when he was in the war. He was in the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, and he's 71, I think. Yeah. So he's pretty old for this time period and has a little bit of an unusual profession. 
Yeah. Going to all these towns and reading the newspaper. So I don't know how much of that we got at the very beginning. But I think think that's background that you need to have for this character to understand his motivations. Yeah, I think we get more detail later, but I believe we get that he owned a printing shop Mm -hmm. in San Antonio at one point before the Mexican-American War. During that war, we find out later that I think the shop gets taken over for other purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was kind of his like in-between. So he started out... The War of 1812 is sort of how he got out of his hometown, saw the world a little bit, got an idea of what he wanted in life. Yeah. Later on, we do get some information that kind of gives us a reason why he's okay with being on the road all the time. Because that is a big point, is that he spends his life going from town to town to town. And he is this old man who prides himself of still being able to get up into the saddle on his own. Okay, so we get some of that background and the importance that he puts on the news and news from faraway places in particular. Yeah, he takes his role in these towns very seriously, I think more seriously than anybody suspects, because he cherry picks the stories he's going to tell based on the audience that he's in front of and what he anticipates the reaction to be. And he really... He's a storyteller. He's a performer. So he's reading just a newspaper. And so on paper, that's what he is. He's a guy who carries newspapers around, comes into town, reads them to people who either can't afford a newspaper or can't read or whatever. But in actuality, what he's doing is trying to bring a wider worldview to people who have a very, very narrow life. Yeah, I don't think that we in our time think about that too much because we have such ready access to yeah. news he's, of the world. He's, he's the original internet. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the opening scene really illustrates how he does cherry pick and tailors what he's going to talk about to the audience because it's a dark and rainy night. It's just the beginning of spring, so it's still miserable cold even in Texas. And these people have been toiling away in the fields or dealing with cattle or, you know. Through wars. Yeah, we're post-war occupation time period, even with uh, northern soldiers really being overbearing in the area. And he's seeing these people come in and he, I think it, it plays a lot into like they are very tired and they're worn out and they don't have time to do this, but they're taking the time to come listen. And so he peppers a mix of important things like the Emancipation Proclamation and information about if Texas wants to rejoin the Union and the things that have to happen in order for that to progress with more whimsical or at this time period, almost seeming outlandish stories to kind of take people out of the drudgery of their lives. I'm trying to remember some of the stories were like an Arctic expedition. and I know there's something out of London, and I want to say there was some scientific discovery. There's some like physicists. They had determined the circumference of the sun or something like that. It It was some like astronomical discovery. That I think you're happened. right. I think whatever it was, though, they were really, really wrong. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so as he ends his reading, he notices a man at the back named Brit 
And we come to learn that Brit is a freed slave who is now the owner of a caravan. So a supply caravan that goes between, you know, all these frontier towns in Texas. And Brit asks a favor of Captain Kidd. And this is the beginning of the story because Brit introduces Captain Kidd to Johanna, who is a 10-year-old girl who was recently returned to an Indian agent and brought back to Texas from Indian territory. She had been captured by a group of Kiowa who then had mostly adopted her into their tribe. She had a parental figures or whatever, but I mean, the important background to this is she was captured. Her family was killed. Yes. By the tribe. Her younger sister too, I, I think, a baby. And then at this point, my understanding is that they bartered her away. So it wasn't like the Indian agent found her and took her back away from them. The Kiowa family that she had been living with was like, here you go. Yeah. If I remember correctly, it was some, I'm going to put this in quote, agreements that had been made between U.S. government officials and the tribes in Indian territory at the time. And it was basically an ultimatum of, unless you give these captives back, you won't get X, Y, Z. And so they gave her back. And the agent was going to return the girl to family who lived down near San Antonio. But because it's a long journey and the agent has other work to do, it kind of became this game hot of Hot potato. <laughs> yeah, hot potato. I think of it similar to in other stories, you hear about people who will buy a letter with the understanding that if they deliver the letter, they'll get payment, right? So I'll give you a penny take this letter and whoever receives it might give you 10 cents. But it wasn't like that so cuz kid didn't give anything. Kid was given money to yes. go take her yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah, so not not exactly like that, but the the sense being paid to deliver this child. So yeah, the payment for taking Joanna, Johanna back to her family was a $50 gold coin. And Brit cannot take this on because his caravan's going a different way. He has nothing to deliver that far south. I think also the climate of the time period was dangerous for a freed black man to be yeah. in that space. Yeah. So he asks Captain Kidd to take it on. And Captain Kidd, being a good man and also a father of two daughters, takes this on. He then has to deal with this girl who is frequently referred to as a completely wild child. I think it's important to note that the author took notes from actual descriptions of people who this had happened to, who had been captives with native tribes during this time period. And it was, I guess, really common for them to very quickly adopt the tribal way of life and kind of just forget get everything that had happened. I think that's probably a trauma response. Oh, definitely. 100%. But I just think it's interesting because this girl, she I think it, she was six when she was captured mm -hmm. and she's now 10. So it's only been four years. Six is old enough that so you should have memory, you know, up to that point. But she doesn't remember English. Her family's German. And later on, she does start to get some of the German back. Yeah. But she has no memory of how to behave, how to dress, any of that. So it's completely gone. She's completely, despite the fact that she's blonde hair, blue eyed, freckles, looks like a perfect little German girl, mm -hmm. you know, behaves just like she had always been part of this tribe. 
and believes that she is. Yeah, that was actually one thing that I got a little frustrated with at first before I really started thinking about the trauma response aspect of it. And as a person who works with young children, in my brain, I'm going, she should remember words. She should have these memories or whatever. But when you really do stop and think about how traumatic it must have been to probably have seen your parents killed and then taken away to a completely new place. You don't know the language. You don't know anything. And it is Well, and taken away by the people who did the killing. But yeah, it is a adapt or die kind of situation. And when faced with that again, because being taken or being given away by that family that she probably clung to in a sense of, I need something to then be given away again at that point, it's almost like, okay, now I'm going to fight. The first time I just went with it, I didn't know what to do. I learned some skills. And that's one thing that is mentioned. I think Kid mentions that the girl has experience with war or weapons or something along those lines. Yeah, she knows how to hold and load a weapon. And so at this point, she thinks, well, now I can fight. I'm going to try to fight. And even still, she is a little girl. And so her fighting back against being put in dresses, being washed, I think is both comical, but also really sad when you think about it. So from that point, I mean, we talked a lot about our feelings. And I think one important thing to know about this book is there's not a whole lot of action. There's a lot of introspection. Like I said, a lot of the sort of flashbacks to kids' life Mm -hmm. to understand what's happening with him. And I'll say at this point, I enjoyed the book a lot more than I thought I would for those very reasons. Yeah, it was a really interesting character exploration, I think. I mean, we talked about her trauma, but I, I think this is a book about trauma. It's his trauma and what has led him to the life that he lives. He's had a very traumatic life. He's been through two wars. Well, three wars. You're right. She held up the number three. Y'all can't see that, but I can. He's been through three wars. He married a woman from another culture, Mm -hmm. which is problematic, but it was probably hard, though, you know, and there was probably bias that he had to deal with. I think there's a lot of interesting history that the frontier of Texas and Mexico at the time was a lot of interaction between Germans and native Mexicans and then immigrants who settled in Mexico from like Spain. The birth of mariachi music is the combination of polka and other music. I didn't know that. Yeah. Next time you, because I know you're an avid mariachi fan, next time you listen, notice that that is such a thing in a lot of mariachi music. And it is the influence of German culture in that time when there was a lot of mixture between uh, settlers in the area. That's really interesting. Complete aside. So we had those, you know, sort of traumatic events. His wife died. And then he's sort of estranged from his children. Not not because he's done anything, but because they're physically distant. Yeah, they're in Georgia. And he's here in Texas. He wants them to come, but they are not ready to. So it's It's been a long time since he's seen them. He's had this hard life on the road. There's no home for him. Yeah, the the home that does exist is in San Antonio. And I do want to go ahead. We are roughly at the point of my favorite quote. Okay. So I'm going to read it. I have it written out here. 
So this is, I think, either the first or one of the first nights that Kid and Johanna are camping along the road. And Kid is looking through his newspapers, preparing for the next time they get to a town, what he might want to read. And he looks over to Johanna, who is starting to relax around him enough to become that curious child that kids typically tend to be. And Captain Kid says, This tells us of all the things we ought to know in the world, and also that we ought to want to know. And that really stood out to me. I think it hits right to the core of Kid's character in the sense that he is a almost religious believer in the printed word. There's another point in the book where he talks about the weight that printed word has and how it can be trusted, which I think is kind of funny considering our current context of news. But it is a very wholesome look into Kid and the altruistic nature that I think he has. Yeah, I don't think that he has insight into how special he is in his approach to the world and how smart he really is. You know, for someone whose education basically is just being in the army, he has a lot of insight and knowledge and understanding into just how the world works and how people work. Like, he'd be a great psychologist. (laughs) He picks up on things that are very nuanced differences, and he can adjust his behavior to have positive outcomes. I think he's interesting because at his heart, he is definitely a romantic and an idealist. Yeah. But life has made him a practical man mm-hmm. and in some ways a cynic, but he is still holding on to this core of optimism, I think. And news of the world, haha, they said the title in the thing, brings that back to him. I think it, it kind of helps ground him. So then they make it to Dallas and they meet Miss Gannett, who she runs the stables, I believe, and maybe an inn with it. I'm starting to get the movie and the book confused because we did just watch the movie. So you and I had very different opinions of Mrs. Gannett. So talk about your opinion. Well, so the conversation happened comparing and contrasting the book versus the movie version of her. And mm. in the book version, I found her to be sort of a sad sack a little bit. I don't know. She just she didn't come across as a strong person. To me, she was very yearning for companionship that wasn't there for her. And so she was just sort of, I mean, she was open and willing to be a helper when needed, but I just, I found her very sad. So I found her to be an exceptionally strong character, (laughs) but not in an outward sense. I found her to be a reflection of Captain Kidd in a lot of ways. The longing for companionship, the solitude, the loneliness of it, And maybe this plays a little bit into stereotypes of men and women, but she embodied that for me in a more passive, quiet, passive. Maybe that's the thing that I found. Yeah, because not strong about her needs to wander, but for her, she's very grounded. She is. I am here. This is where my roots are. This is where I'm going to stay. I'm going to weather this. And so I found that to be a very quiet strength. Okay. And she also doesn't take crap from people. Well, she has the drunk stable hand that she just kind of abides. She kicks him around a little bit, kind of tells him what to do, but otherwise she's more kind to him than I think a lot of other people would be. But again, I think that it speaks to just, I am a solid, sad, sure, 
but strong character. So that's, I just thought it was very interesting that you and I had completely different takes on her. Also, I was really sad that Kid didn't get with her. I mean, he insinuates that he plans to. Yeah. But again, it never comes to fruition. He's also quite a bit older than her. I think she's described as being early to mid 40s. Yeah. Well, I mean. So he was a whole ass adult when she was a baby. It happened. (laughs) It'd be like that. Okay. So then in Dallas, he reads the news again. This is also, I think, where Almay finally approaches him. So Almay is the blonde man we talked about, and he's sort of seen this guy in the background. And from the get-go, he clocked to, this is someone I need to pay attention to and be wary of. Another example of how Kid is a very astute observer. So Almay approaches him and has that very, you know, like the person who's, mouth is smiling but their eyes say i want to kill you that's how i yeah total psychopath imagine him presenting but he comes up basically says how much for the girl yeah because he's gonna sell her into prostitution so what i think is really interesting is they do not outright say i'm going to sell this girl into prostitution right and something that i like about alme as a villain is that he is uncomplicated but the author did not oversell this evil aspect of it. It is very easily alluded to. Maybe Kid mentions it, but he never says it out loud. Aside from, I think, a a comment of, at least you'll know she gets paid. Yeah. But there is something that I actually really do enjoy about an uncomplicated, I'm a bad guy, but also not overly exposing about it. The exposition on him is just his smile, his very casual, polite demeanor with this evil just reeking off of him. Yeah. So this sets off the faster pace of the book. I think this is, it starts off a little bit slow. It gets really intense. Yeah, really intense right here. And then it kind of tapers off at the end. But so Kid realizes I'm in deep shit at this point. And he lies and says, yep, I'll meet with you tomorrow. Yeah, let me just get some stuff in order and I'll meet up with you in the morning for breakfast. Yeah, but actually he goes and he loads his caravan up right away and they go off into the night. And he's even got plans for which path they're going to take to sort of throw them off because he thinks, well, they're going to assume we went this way, but there won't be any tracks that way. Yeah, because Almay knows that he's returning this girl to her family down San Antonio way. This sort of brings up another point that I just thought was really interesting about the book overall that I never really considered is that, I mean, Texas is huge. Texas is larger than many countries. But despite the area of Texas being very large, the way it's presented here is it's actually really small. It's surprising to me how people in all of these towns know the travelers as they go through. So it's I thought about that and compared to current day where it's, you know, the same space and it's much easier to move in between spaces. Oh, yeah. But people are much more strangers than they were at that time. You would have thought that people who are, they don't ever go anywhere, they would have their people and anybody else is a stranger. And that's not how it was. It was like you could go from town to town and see people that you know in each place. Yeah. And and news moves ahead of you. It comes behind you. I think it comes down a lot to just, we have to realize how few people there actually were. Yeah. Dallas is described as barely a town, which I think is hilarious considering how sprawling and huge Dallas is now. 
But yeah, how quickly conversation and news does travel in its own way, not the way that he reads it. Because again, this is news from next town over versus the news of the world, those outside places. Yeah, how quickly all that information moves. And then you think about, well, they don't have other things to distract them. People talking about what's going on around them is the entertainment in its own way. I think the thing that I just, I don't know, maybe it was getting too spacey or whatever, (laughs) but just this idea that we're so connected now, but we're really not. Like we're not connected to each other in the way that people were connected to each other back then. Yeah. That is also in the book right by my quote after he tells the girl about the news and everything. He then says his prayers and he mentions Brit because Brit is always in danger. He mentions his family in Georgia, you know, all these things. And I think another line is so many people, so much harm. And it's not even that many people when you think of it, again, in our standards. But So anyway, that was an aside, but it was something I kept coming back to throughout the book. So they run off from Dallas. He knows that Almay is going to follow him. And they make it a ways before they're caught up to, but they are caught up to eventually. And this epic shootout happens. I don't feel like that I can (laughs) build the intensity of what it was, but it was really intense because, you know, he's an old man and a little girl who can't communicate really with Mm -hmm. each other. Yeah, they've started to trade a few words, but... This is another piece that I didn't know about the history in Texas, but that it was illegal to carry handguns. So you were allowed to have like a rifle with birdshot in it, but that's it. So he had a secret handgun that he was hiding, but for his rifle, all he had was the birdshot. Yeah, he had one of those two-barrel shotguns. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know that history that brought up a lot of thoughts about... (laughs) current Texas culture with guns and maybe that's where it comes from is somebody did take their guns. Well, and the balance of the necessity and need for safety because of how dangerous of a place it was versus the idea of we need to reimpose security and law and order in this state that rebelled against the union. So they're in this shootout. They're sort of up above where mm-hmm. Almay and Almay has two Caddo associates with him and Kid is a good shot, but he's kind of in a bad position and he has very little ammo. Yeah, he has not much ammo and he's run out of handgun ammo. He basically tells Johanna, you just need to run, just go. And she won't. And she keeps handing him the shells for the shotgun and he he finally empties them out and he shows her like, this isn't going to do anything. This won't hurt them. And so she's looking at the shells and she kind of scurries off away and he's trying to come up with this plan of how he can save her and distract them with himself long enough for her to get away. And she comes back with the dimes that they've been collecting at the readings. And so she has looked at the shells, looked at the dimes and realized that's going to fit in there. So she loads the shells up with dimes and he's like, Fuck it. Let's go. Let's try. Which, okay, I know we're in the middle of the only real action scene of the book, but I have to say that for Johanna, from her wildness to her silliness at times to her curiosity, this is in a way who I wanted to be when I was a little kid. My friends and I would always play like pirate stowaway or... You know, just things like that, the wild child out in the wilderness. And so listening to all the stuff about Johanna and the weird things that she would do because she's uncivilized just took me back to this childhood place in my heart. And so in this scene, when she does that, I'm like, fuck yeah, Johanna, you're awesome. Let's go. Anyway, continue. 
So he takes the shells and he has a really crafty plan for how he's going to play this out. So he doesn't just immediately shoot the the dime shells. He shoots some of the birdshot first to sort of give them a sense of safety so that they will come out of hiding. Yeah, he's bluffing. Oh, I forgot a key part here. Before this happens, they're feeling desperate, like they're not going to get out of this. Johanna runs off and pushes a fucking boulder down the hill and smashes. Just bodies a dude. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah, I completely forgot about that. So she got the first kill. Yeah, because she's a fucking boss. (laughs) (laughs) So she takes that guy out. Then she comes up with the idea for the dime. So he's. He's playing that up now. Yeah, he's faking them out like, oh, I'm out of ammo. All I got is this birdshot, whatever, so that they'll come out of hiding and, you know, believe that they're out of his range so it's safe for them to come out. And then he just fucking clocks them with- Yeah, gets Alma in particular. Straight to the head. I think it says, like, it takes a good chunk of his head off or lots of bits of his face go flying off because of the yeah. dimes hitting him. There's some good detail about how the dimes fly through the air and all yeah, this Yeah, and stuff. how hard it hits him, too, because yeah. it's such a recoil from that. Yeah. I have two quotes from this- Scene? Mm, yeah, like from this area. So the first one that I really like is, some people were born unsupplied with a human conscience, and those people needed killing. Yeah, in particular to Alme. And then the second quote is, so they shoot him, and does the other guy, does he get shot or does he just run off? So one guy guy is smashed by the boulder. I think he hits one guy with the pistol. His hand or his arm, I believe, because the third guy does run off. He just pieces out Um, after Alme dies. So after Alme dies, Johanna's like, yeah, like she, yeah she like pulls out a knife and is holding it over her head and she's doing some like victory chant again yeah. just absolutely loving this girl yeah so then she takes off towards alme's body and then my my other quote from this is kid says no absolutely not no no scalping it is considered very impolite <laughs> which uh yeah. i mean i don't think i need to explain why that was a fun yeah. one So this is the big scene, really, of the story. And as you mentioned, the pace of the story is very slow. It's, I don't think ponderous is the right word, but it is slow and thoughtful, reminiscent, gives lots of time for those flashbacks. Well, and it's the reality of what a trip like that would have been. Sure. And then we have this crazy scene and a huge bonding experience for the two of them. This is the point where Johanna really accepts him as her protector and her companion yeah versus somebody that she's fighting against so i think this is the turning point where she decides I'm he's here you. for me i'm here for you we're yeah. here together and it's after that point i think as they move on and they go to other towns he starts incorporating her into the readings as well he starts bringing her along and she yeah. gets to collect the dimes yeah she sits out and this is again a benefit of the audio story you get to hear the way she pronounces the words because there are instances in the story where it shows that she struggles i believe with the r sound because in Kiowa apparently that sound isn't common or doesn't exist or something but in particular what i love is when she's given a job and she is very proud of her job, which is to collect the dimes at the door and she will sit there and she will say, Dima, Dima. And she will berate people if they try to sneak through without paying. And so, yeah, she starts to open up. You see more of the joy of a child that I, in particular, again, as someone who works with kids, really enjoy seeing or reading or hearing about. It's just more real. makes her seem like less of a caricature of a kid. So 
after the shootout and all of this happens, they are on the road again and they are met up by a group of, what would you call them? They're rough guys. Ruffians. Yeah, they basically post up on the road and I think they style themselves out as vigilante protectors of Fredericksburg because there is a lack of law enforcement and also resentment towards the militarization of the law enforcement because a lot of it is done by the Union Army. And so in these pockets where the Union Army isn't present, these people take it upon themselves. But it ends up becoming very much pay this toll or you're not going to get through this road. And that's how we meet a character named John Callie. So yeah, they approach him and end up asking him for what I think they think is like a small sum of money. So they think they're being really nice by only asking for a little bit of money, which he gives. He goes into town and he does a reading, knowing that it's going to be a contentious reading. People are already sort of on high alert. You can tell that this side of the room and this side of the room are ready to fight. So he's sort of picking out the stories that he thinks are going to keep things really calm. And the people being ready to fight, it's all around the two main government factions in Texas at the time, which is the followers of Edmund J. Davis and the followers of Andrew Jackson Hamilton. And it basically sums down to more independent Texas first mindset, a lot of the resentment towards the North for winning the war, and those who are considered to be in the pocket carpetbagger Northern sympathizers. And so you have these two warring groups that have very strong opinions. And each faction has their own newspaper, I believe. They have local, basically propaganda papers. Yeah. And that's what they start calling out almost immediately. Why aren't you reading from that? Why aren't you reading about this? And he sort of challenges that and says, that's not news, which sort of tamps it down for a little bit. Mm -hmm. But eventually, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, these guys came ready for a fight to yeah. the news reading. So they destroy the shop that they're in. They're in like a general store or yeah, something. Yeah, I think it's mentioned as almost like an arcade, but not in the game arcade sense, more of a indoor shopping mall kind of mm -hmm. vibe. They really just make a big old mess. This is your saloon fight yeah. <laughs> in a yeah. typical Western show. Yeah, just imagine the, the piano player just abruptly stopping as a chair is thrown across the room. <laughs> I wish that had been in the movie. <laughs> Spoiler, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> but after the reading, he sticks it out. So the fight happens and he kind of just sits back and lets it flow out the door. And then he has to put his pride to the side, basically, and scoop up the money off the floor, pick it out of the glass and everything because they've used a lot of their money as <laughs> ammo. Yeah, as ammo, as bribes. Yeah. And this is where John Callie comes back and is like, hey, man, you know what? I feel real bad. I think he gives him his money back. Well, what he does is he's like, oh, look, there's some money that made it up here on the counter. Isn't that oh, odd? Oh, yeah. They make a point to really describe it, how he's changed clothes and he's made himself look very presentable. And it, back to the observational prowess of mm -hmm. the captain, he understands that this was an attempt to show I'm a good person. I'm a stand-up guy. Even though I hustled you on the way in, I can be a good guy. Yeah. That's who I really am. So I think that was... It was a neat, again, character observation, how... You know, nobody, aside from Alme, who is very one-dimensional bad, 
nobody is just a flat, this is all I am character. So from there, they leave town again. They go through, I would say, up until they get to San Antonio. The only maybe important to mention thing is the point at which they're camping and there's actually a group of Kiowa people crossing the river and the captain is concerned that Johanna is going to call out to them and try to, you know, contact them so that she can go and she doesn't. And she actually gives him the impression like, it's okay. I'm not going to do that. Like she understands that that's what he's worried about and she calms that fear um, and they stay hidden and then continue on their way. There is a quick bit about some other rough characters who I think are an interesting counter to John Callie and his guys in that these other rougher cowboy guys style themselves as saviors of white people. In Texas, they do a lot of, quote unquote, driving off of tribes, driving off of Mexican settlers in the area, and they believe that they should be in the news and that places far away should be hearing about them. And this is one instance where Captain Kidd isn't really able to defuse the situation in any way, and so he just has to keep moving. He can't read the news there because he knows there's no way I'm coming out of this unscathed. And so they very quickly skirt that situation. Now we're getting into the end of the story. We're getting very close to where Johanna's aunt and uncle live in Castroville, which is outside of San Antonio. But as they come through the area, there is one more little stop where I believe they stop at a church where Johanna's parents are buried. And there is some remembrance that Captain Kidd notices in Johanna. He's noticing that she is remembering those events and how terrible they were. And it's an interesting little moment because, again, it shows Johanna's progression from kind of this helpless, wild character to a more realized person who is coming to terms with her trauma and is overcoming it. And I thought that that was a really good scene. It's not lingered on very long. And Captain Kidd mentions something along the lines of it's better to just move on from these things, which I think speaks to kind of his non-stationary character of I just need to keep moving in order to get past stuff. So what's funny is I honestly don't remember that in the book. I remember that in the movie, but I don't remember that in the book It is different in the movie. It is different in the movie. But that's, I mean, that happens and he expresses that sentiment. Yeah. In the movie. So after that, they make their way to the homestead of the aunt and uncle who have paid to bring Johanna back. He There's a rider that meets them outside of the little settlement area, and he rides ahead to tell the family. Yeah. So the rider is very excited and very positive about hearing this news that this kidnapped child has been brought back. So that's a good sign. But then they make it to the homestead, and it's clear right away that they are really not that excited about having her back and it's like they wanted her back but they wanted her back on the principle that she belongs to us not you and we need workers we need people to help us because we are hard toiling folk it leans very heavy into the cold unaffectionate hard worker vibe they're not soft with her she's been through extreme trauma that most of us could never even understand or anticipate and they have absolutely no understanding for that no compassion for it and it's played up as this we don't have time 
for that. Get over it. It's time to work. And their their concerns are things like she doesn't have good manners. Yeah, very much all about the appearance of civility. Kid knows right away. He knew beforehand that this is not going to go well, but he feels honor bound because he accepted and spent the money. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of stuff where they keep asking if he has receipts for what he spent the money uh, yeah, on. Yeah, because if he didn't spend all the money, then they might want their yeah. change back. Yeah. <laughs> There is a mention of the community kind of throws a little celebratory dinner, and it's at that dinner that Captain Kidd is told about another cousin or distant relative to the aunt and uncle that they took care of. There is mention of how they treated him. And so that's another little glimpse of how very hard and uncaring they were with him, and he hadn't even gone through anything. Yeah, and the the messenger guy that you spoke of before, I think he's the one that's telling them, don't leave her here. Yeah. Like, this is not going to be good. Yeah. But he does. He leaves. Yeah, he does. And it is hard for him, and he knows that he's leaving her with not great people, And but he feels... Like, I mean, what do you do? You know, this is the family. There's nothing else to be done about it. This was the whole point of this journey was to bring her here and I can't not do it. I already accepted payment. So he leaves and goes back to San Antonio and starts the process of I'm going to settle back here again and prepare for my daughters and their families to come over and start working on getting this. Is it Bedencourt? I think is the estate, the Bedencourt mansion. But then he has a change of heart. He realizes, I can't, I can't do this to this girl. So in like old knight in shining armor, (laughs) the the last flash of action in the story, he rides back and comes upon Johanna out in the field. Yeah. Where she's, uh, he can see that she's got like marks on her Mm -hmm. and she's out. I think it's nighttime. Yeah, she's either collecting or distributing something out of these really heavy buckets, and it's way too much for her to carry. It's too much for her to carry. She's by herself, and I think it's late. I think it's late at night, and he's like, come on, we're leaving. So he doesn't say anything. He just basically kidnaps her back. Just kept in Johanna go. (laughs) Yes, and we get a glimpse into the future, so we get this very fast, like, All this stuff happens. She lives with him. His family eventually does come back. Mm -hmm. And then it skips to she's a young woman. Well, 15. Okay. And (laughs) she's 15. That's true. Yeah. I I always, it always kind of weirds me out how young women are in these period piece stories when it's like time to get married. Yeah. So, spoiler. Oh, sorry. (laughs) A man walks in. And it is an older John Callie, and she and he are equally smitten with each other. He remembers her from when she was a child, and they, I think they like- They play the piano together. Yes, they play the piano together, which reminds me of our first book. Oh, Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) I didn't even think about that, yeah. (laughs) Man, pianos are sexy. (laughs) I guess, man. But they end up getting married, and that's kind of... There is a nice, tender little scene between Captain Kidd and Johanna where they're getting ready for the wedding, and they're both all dressed up. And she's kind of nervous, and he's sad that she's kind of 
growing up and he gives her his pocket watch, which is something that is mentioned every time he reads, he would set the pocket watch down, get out his reading glasses. So the pocket watch is almost like a little minor character in and of itself, but he gives that to her. And there's another quote that I think happens in this scene. I'm going to be completely honest. I only just thought of it before we started recording. And we did not mention at all that one of the things that he buys with that money is a cart. And it is a used cart painted green with gold lettering on the side that says curative waters somewhere, somewhere in Texas. The curative waters are mentioned again and again throughout the journey about how the cart gets peppered with bullet holes. And again, another object that plays a minor character and a means for reflecting for the characters. And Johanna calls, she says, you are my curative waters. And I thought that was really sweet. So let's just, uh, let's go ahead and get into our arbitrary judgment. I think I have a good uh, rating system for you here. How many cents out of one dima would you give this book? (laughs) I would give this book probably, I'm going to say eight cents. I was going to say the same thing. Almost a full dima. Yeah. I actually really, really enjoyed this book much more than I expected to. I loved Captain Kidd. I loved Johanna. I liked that it didn't shy away from the ugly parts Mm -hmm. of life in that time. But it also didn't go so obnoxiously into the minute details either. It gave a lot of detail of how you had to go about doing every little thing to get by, but it didn't feel like a slog at all. Mm -mm. I'm happy that I read this book. (sighs) However... (laughs) Let's talk about the movie. Uh, the movie I was very excited about because Tom Hanks, not Tom Cruise. <laughs> and I don't know what happened. I, I read a little bit of the history of like this movie coming to fruition, and it did pass from a couple studios. It had a full rewrite. Yeah. So I'm curious what the original screenplay looked like because they changed so much of the story that all the things that we really loved about the characters in the book were just not there. Yeah, the meaning in it was not the same. So uh, broad strokes, they made the captain a veteran of the Civil War. They changed him to a Civil War veteran who had to surrender, who fought for the South. And he still has this profession where he goes around and reads the news, but he's not hes not this quick adept guy. Yeah, he's that- not as savvy. Yeah, the captain from the novel is. He's a lot younger, obviously, so um, he doesn't have all of this sort of hardened, grizzled old man that I was expecting him to be. Or the wisdom. Or the wisdom of, yeah, going through all of that. And he's sort of strong-armed into taking her. Brit isn't in the story at all. He just comes across a broken, overturned, attacked wagon, and there's someone hanging in the tree, and the girl is there in the rubble. And he grabs her and catches her, and then these Union soldiers come up, and they're like, well, take her. And he tries to pass her off. He takes her to, like, I don't know, some army person, and tries to say, hey, you need to take her. And he's- Get her back to the agent. Yeah, and he says, nope, she's your problem. Yeah. He just seems hapless. So in the book and in the movie, Captain Kidd is often, I guess you would say, on his back foot. He's constantly having to react. But in the book, he is able to at least predict how these bad things are going to play out. 
Yeah, and he, so he, he is better. Yeah, he knows from the get go that these things are going to happen, and so he plays what cards he has. Yeah, to make it come out to his advantage. And in the movie, it's just like he's bumbling around, yeah. just by the grace of God, made it through. The reading that devolves into a fight completely different. There's hardly any mention of the political discourse of the time. Instead, this fight is combined with the rough guys that want themselves to be in the news. And so there's this really weird mashed together bit where they come on this town that is basically this company that is slaughtering all the buffalo in the area, which we know is something that did happen in the Great Plains area around the time there was this huge buffalo pelt and meat industry that almost hunted them all to extinction. And it's this very gruesome, gross scene of them coming into town with buffalo half picked apart on either side of the road and these really mean overlord company guys who want to fashion themselves as beacons of civilization in this area and saviors of the people. It and reminds me a little bit of I, – now I haven't watched much of this, but it reminds me of the snippets I've seen of The Walking Dead where you have these weird communities that are all around some big, pretty Cult crazy- of personality. Yeah. 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 That's what it reminded me of. These people are basically trapped. Yeah. In- or Waterworld. Oh. Where the, what are they called? The smokers, the, the oil group that rides the jet skis and they're bad guys. Have you never seen Waterworld? I've seen Waterworld. I don't remember smokers on jet skis. <laughs> Anyway, it's, been a while. it's this cult of personality. And rather than this Captain Kid who reads the room and tries his best not to rabble rouse, he does the exact opposite. He tries to rabble rouse these people to the point where he incites kind of an uprising. Now, granted, the big bad guy gets shot in the end, and I guess that's kind of nice, but it is so counter to his character in the book that you and I, I think we had to pause it and just be like, what the fuck did they do? Yeah, it didn't make any sense with what his character's motivations were, what he was supposed to be about. But I think that was a big part. John Callie is also part of this town. And I told you when we watched it, John Callie looks like a freaking psychopath. He has that weird, I'm smiling, but I'm going to eat your face when you're asleep or something. He just looks crazy to me. I didn't see that. I saw what looked like... A very, very, very uneducated person who has grown up with very bad people. I'm struggling to to put words to it. If Hitler had a golden retriever, that's John (laughs) Kelly. (laughs) And luckily, luckily, because this is how John Kelly is depicted in the movie, he does not show up at the end to marry Johanna. Uh, (laughs) Johanna doesn't marry Hitler's golden retriever. Oh my gosh. Uh, as a matter of fact, we don't get to see grown-up Johanna or anything. The movie just kind of abruptly ends after he goes back and gets her. But he also goes back and has like a little showdown with her aunt and uncle. Not I say showdown, but he just kind of says like, hey, you don't want her. I do. Give her back. And they're just like, uh, okay. I liked in the book how he steals her back. Yeah. Because that is a change in his character mm-hmm. in the book. And it's a turning point. And so to go back and just confront them just feels like you took that away from him. You took that character evolution away from him. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, it's interesting that the original book came out in 2016. This movie came out in, what was it, 2020? I can't remember. 
but obviously after 2016, not that long ago, and they scrubbed all of the stuff about the Kiowa being bad. Honestly, they scrubbed a lot of just everything about tribes in general. There was little bits here and there, but it was very much, I don't want to say it was an erasure because they're in there. They say, yes, they came and they killed the family. Mm -hmm. But any of the other stuff that's problematic, I think you talked about when we first read the back of the book that you were worried that there was going to be things that were problematic that we wouldn't be okay with now. They did not sugarcoat anything. They presented it in the way, again, they had done a lot of research around what really happened to these people that were held captive. Yeah, the book doesn't shy away from the ugly aspects of the way life was then. The realities of how it was. Yeah. But it also did it in a respectful way. You know, it was because it was just very much this is how it was. There wasn't any editorializing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I said they didn't make them seem bad. And that's, I guess that is editorializing. But there are hard, gruesome facts about The interaction between tribes and and white settlers at the time, for sure. Yeah, and they completely took that away in the movie to the point that in the movie there is an added scene where they're in like a dust storm. Yeah. They come across a Kiowa tribe and they just give them a horse and saddle and all this stuff out of nowhere. After in the movie they arbitrarily just kill the two horses that they have through the whole thing, yeah. which, again, talk about other beloved characters, Pasha and Fancy, Fancy. The two horses that, in the book, survive the whole thing. In the movie, they just kill them off. Yeah, that's like a runaway carriage, and they just fall down a hill. One dies instantly, the other one he has to shoot, just so that the two of them can be walking desperate and thirsty through the Texas desert-like land, and then come across this storm so that a random Kiowa tribe that they happen to come across just gives them a horse, which I guess is the stand-in for that scene where they're hiding and they see that there's the couple Kiowa people there and she doesn't go to them. Because in this scene, in the movie, it does serve that purpose of she has this opportunity and Kid thinks she's going to them and she's just going to walk off with them. And she doesn't. She comes back with the horse. But it is so ham-fisted in the movie that it's just... And it just doesn't make sense. So the reality of those times, there's no way... And it's the tribe in the movie is depicted as like... Destitute. Well, it, they're destitute, and there's a lot of them. Yeah. Most of them are on foot. For them to just gift a horse and all of the trappings that come with your horse... Yeah. Is, it's ridiculous. There's no way that that would have happened. I also want to say, <laughs> while reading the book... During the, I don't know that we talked about this at all, but they have these really treacherous river crossings. There's oh. a couple of them that happen. And there was a point in the book when they were crossing the Brazos that I was like, Pasha's going to die. And I was so excited when I got to the end of the book and Pasha didn't die. Yeah. And then we watched the movie and it was like, God damn it. Yeah. There it is. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. It circles back around to my prediction that the movie was meant to be Oscar bait. And that is just such a stupid ploy to pull at your heartstrings like oh the animal died but in the movie you have no connection to it they never say the names of the horses in the movie which in the book they mention them all like there's a there's a part where they're leaving one town and he is encouraging fancy who pulls the carriage to move along and fancy's kind of hesitating he's like oh do i not feed you good oats and just having this silly banter with the horse so you get this connection to the animals in the book. So if you're going to have an impactful death of an animal, you want to have a connection to it. And there is no connection to the animals in the movie. So uh, how many daima for the movie? One. 
Yeah, I was going to say two because I like even numbers. But There you go. What I will give the movie is I didn't like it all the time, but I did find the camera work interesting. For being a You're Western- You're just saying that because it got a cinematography nod. No, no. I didn't know that until we came <laughs> up here to, to record. And I mentioned it while we were watching the movie. <laughs> What I found interesting about it was that a lot of Western movies are known for their very panoramic, wide, huge shots of the big, empty nothing that is the West. And there's a little bit of that, but this film does a lot of showing that, but also pulling it in and having very tight shots. And so- And I wonder if that was an attempt to portray the stuff that I was talking about, the closeness and the connectedness despite the space. Yeah. So screw you. You know that I thought about that before I read the thing. I will say that the acting for what they had to work with was good. I'm specifically Tom Hanks and then I, I I wish I knew that actress's name, but she was very good as Johanna, I thought. Helena Zengel played Johanna. I hope that that is how you pronounce her name. She did get a nomination for a Golden Globe for best supporting actor, so. So I thought they were good, but I just could not abide the butchering that they the did of the absolute story. butchering of the story for sure and i and i am a person who generally enjoys most movies that i watch and i was very upset at this movie despite going into it knowing that movies can never be completely true to the book this was a bastardization of the story so if y'all out there have watched the movie I'd love to hear what your opinions are whether you read the book or didn't read the book i think that would be interesting to hear from someone who didn't read the book and only watched the movie. Yeah. We're definitely biased by having the base story in our heads first. So hit us up either at our email, librarygamepodcast at gmail.com or the library game on Instagram or Twitter. We'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions. If you have book recommendations, any ideas on things we could do to shake things up, we welcome that too. Okay, so that's it for this episode. If you are looking to read along with us into the future, Lacey, why don't you go ahead and give them our coordinates for our next book? Our RSSB coordinates for the next book are 13, 3, 4, 6. That's row 13, section 3, shelf 4, book 6, which at our library led us to The Obsidian Tower by Melissa Caruso. So... Give it a read if you want, or maybe those coordinates will lead you somewhere else. Let us know where it leads you next time on The Library Game. Bye-bye.